Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off, we're off, we're off, we're off. There we are off. Um, good, right, yeah, good. Yeah, that's about right, two o'clock. It's, uh, well, midday for Friday listeners. Anytime you want for podcast listeners. And <laughs> could be a Friday. Rec- could be a Friday. Pre-recording live. Uh, no, it's pre-recording. <laughs> pre-recording live. As live. When- as live. As live. As what? As live. Let's listen to some as what. My name is Nick. This is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you are uh, listening to uh, Nick and... Nathaniel Metcalf, sir. Fan club. Fan club. With me, Nick. <laughs> and... Nathaniel Metcalf. First rule of fan club. Tell your friends about fan club. Friends. Second rule of fan, fan club. Please, please, for the love of God, tell your friends. I think some people are actually telling their friends. Now. Yeah, I noticed it this week. I feel like after two and a bit years of just saying it every week in every single episode, I think it's finally got through to people that uh, tell that people are saying to tell your friends or telling yeah. their friends. Yeah, it's, it was a good up. one. Keep it up. It's a good, no, it's a good one. Last that someone replied to one of your tweets about it and said, oh, "I had no idea you did a podcast or something," and I was like. And you're like, yeah, I mean, this doesn't work. Social media. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah, actually, tweet a, just naturally, you know, tweet about it three or four times a week. Of course. You know. Keep doing it. Because, because, because um, just because it comes out on a Friday and then it's re-released on a Monday or whatever, so that's two tweets straight away. So there's like two or three tweets a week. And nobody fucking doesn't doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Might as well just be. Might as well just be. Um, you know, fucking using smoke signals. It's fucking nothing. It's shit. It's Twitter shitter more like. Nice. Um, what have you been a fan of this week? <laughs> I mean, you can see me drinking water, right? That's sort of that's why. I'd and then you just you just watch me drink water. Yeah. Come on. I was being tricksterish. Let's stop tearing each other apart, Nat, and start working no, together, yeah? We should. we should finally start working together. Not against each other. Yes. Uh, I, uh, what have I been doing this week? I have what been... have you done this week? What have you done this week? How are you? Are you all right? I'm all right. You know, things are... Things are um... More positive in the news. Um, I'm, I'm I'm a bit more positive in general. Um, uh, I I had my angle poise last week, didn't I? But that's working out for me. I've got an angle poise lamp. I've had a morning where I've hung washing up and brought it back in again. Um, you know, it's it, it's up and down, isn't it? It's up and down as the weeks go by. Well, it sounds non-stop. Um, non non-stop for you. I've sort of prepared myself for uh, you know. Being locked down and coronavirus, and and I feel like now I'm willing to extend my um, willingness towards it. I'm extending it like the furlough till about March. After with which I'm going to be really fed up with it. I think I've had enough after that. I think it's um, what you're COVID. Get on his bike after that. On your bike, mate. I've put up with you for a long time. Now you're on your bike. It'll be about a year, won't it, by next March? Yeah. 
and that feels I like... I remember, what was it, March the 6th, I think, I went to see Supergrass, and then the next... And then I was ill for mm. two weeks. Yeah. And then, and then it was the first lockdown started on the Friday. I got better. I remember you had to miss a fan club, didn't you? You're too, too, too sick to do it. Did I? You did, yeah. But I think it might have been the last one we would have done anyway. So I don't know if it right. would have happened regardless. Right. Um, yeah, it was about last March. And I've been going through um, my emails and the past year and my diaries for because I was doing my tax return. And it is a sort of depressing um, look through the past when you actually used to do things, I find. Just going through things, going, hey, I remember doing that when I could just do things most most evenings and I had uh, plans and a life and I went out and stuff. It's weird. So, uh, it's weird. I um, really, yesterday was the first time that I really, really missed going to the pub and I was just like, I'd like to go to the pub and I would like to see a friend and go to the pub with a friend and have a drink. That is what I really wanted. And you can't, and you can't do that. So it's sort of like, that was it. But I'm fine, you know. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just sort of like can't remember life before this now. I think that's what I feel like. And it's going through my diary that reminds me of... I've got so... I'm so acclimatised to being indoors all the time. Um, and doing nothing, that I've it's become the narrative of my life that, oh, yeah, I never used to go out, never used to do anything. And then it, it takes me going through my diary from last year and going, oh, no, I was doing things all the time, really busy, yeah. really busy. Yeah. And it's just stopped. And you go, oh, actually, I'd quite like, um, I'd quite like that back a bit, thanks. It doesn't help. Um, I mean, I think being acclimatised is the best way to deal with something. But it kind of doesn't help in a way to be uh, reminding of uh, reminded of what you were doing a year ago. Yeah, well, I don't know. I miss I miss going to the cinema, mm-hmm. and I miss going to the pub, and I miss just sort of like casual interactions, mm. like like you know, going for a meal or going to a restaurant or. or you know, going to the pub or something like that. Those are the things I miss that you sort of take for granted. Um, but you should take them for granted because that's what, you know, yeah. that's what life is. Yeah. And it's you interesting know. that they are the, they're the kind of quite little things in a week that you miss. There they are. They are the bits. The things you miss most are the things that seem kind of casual and you wouldn't even have thought about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. Not the big things that you'd be like, oh, I remember when we did that big thing. It's not that. It's all just small. Just the ability to be. And I reckon once or twice a day I forget that and I find myself thinking, what am I doing tonight? I'll do that or something and I'll completely forget that I'm not doing anything tonight or tomorrow night or the night after. Um, and it's still like... Um, it really hasn't caught up with my subconscious at all, which is still... Um, that everything's normal. And, you know, when I... My dreams are still in normal normal life, and I wake up and go, oh, yeah, all this. Busy in my dreams, doing all, doing all kinds. I think it's quite interesting that, you know, for a year, or however many months, 10 months, 8 months, we have all been 100% responsible for our own entertainment. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like... 
there's no, uh, you know, it's kind of like, if you don't do something interesting or fun, that's on you now. It's not like something, <laughs> it's not like something will happen by chance. You have yeah. to sort of like organise it all. I don't know. But um, I'll tell you what I really, i tell you what I really um, struggle with is that I, um, I'm coming to the, I'm coming to the conclusion that um, I really don't like writing. Um, I will write as a means to an end, and if I have a deadline, I can do it. And I've, you know, but it's the sort of thing like, I want to make a short film or I want to make a series, so I will write it, mm-hmm. you know. And, I, and I'm quite good at writing, but I hate doing it. And I don't know if it's laziness or what. But, um, uh, but I was working with a friend on, on writing a script when we were allowed to see people. And they would come over and I would sort of like pace around and I'd sort of like fire out ideas and stuff. And then he would write it all up. And um, and so that's uh, like I miss working with people because I'm, I'm all right working by myself, but I hate it. And I hate working from home. So I like going to the Soho Theatre cafe, writing there or bumping into someone and uh, and I like working with other people and so when it's just me the responsibility is all on me I have found that very difficult um and it's and I guess it's a case of kind of like just getting on with it but I still find it I I still find it very difficult and my preference is to work with people um so yeah so I've just I'm coming to that conclusion, but I'm not, but that's that's what I miss. I miss kind of like um, bumping into people, seeing people, so I, all the socialising stuff, mm. um, and and then when it comes to work, I like working with people. But that's why I that's why I struggle with stand up comedy because it's so lonely, mm. and you're on your own. And I'm good at it, mm. you know, but but. Um, it's the it's the the isolation and being on your own to do it is yeah. what I what I you know like what I you know I did last Edinburgh I did my show and I did I think you stink and my show was fine but I had Aaron who was my tech guy and we just you know saw each other you know he looked after me mm. and we saw each other every day and then it was less lonely you know because every day i would have someone to talk to and go how what do you think of the audience today do you know what i mean you had someone with like a shared like experience of every single show i have james hingley whenever i do edinburgh do my tech and his main job it's not they're never particularly tech heavy shows but his main job really is to be in the same room so I can moan to him about the gig I've just had, so it's not in my head all day. That's his, that's sure. exactly what what his job is really. Right. It's just that's the main thing I want is to go. Ah, oh, can't believe, or that was awful, and for him to say no, it wasn't, or hopefully say that. Sometimes you might say. <laughs> sometimes you might say, yeah, it was. He's also said, ah, oh, did you see those people who were talking all the way through? And I go, no, no, but now I know they were there. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, did you fucking see him, James? Uh, because you know you could have told him to shut the fuck up. Um, I, yeah. So, I, so, so, so. I mean, so that's what I like about that's what I liked about my solo show, and then my other show, where I got to see that lot every day. Um, 
that was like the best. That was one of the best Edinburgh experiences I've ever had, because it, um, it wasn't it wasn't solo stand up. It was kind yeah. of like there was a group of us, and we really struggled in Edinburgh for, with I think he stink. The show was great. We had what well, I think we had something like eight five star reviews. Like so, but but we couldn't sell the tickets. Like no one, you know, we were we were never more than like half full. Um, except for one day when we were absolutely rammed. Like it was it was a sellout show, and then nobody laughed, and nobody. It was just the quietest audience, and we were. But we'd come off stage every, you know, in between scenes and stuff, going, "They're the most boring fucking audience." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We weren't like blaming ourselves because it was the same show as it was all the other days. But we'd come off and we were just like, fucking hell, what's the fucking point in turning up if you're going to just sit there? That came up um, at the Danny, Janet Varney one the other week we were doing when I was saying that I did a sketch show one year in Edinburgh. I really enjoyed it. And at the end of it, I was a bit like, nah, I'd probably do stand-up now. And But I, what I liked about it was that it was so supportive. It was almost too supportive because you had a completely shared experience. Like, if it was a bad gig, you'd be, you'd all be... It would feel fine. I didn't... Have I didn't hate myself at the end of it? I'd be like, yeah, because yeah, there's three people going. Oh well, do you want to get a? Do you want to go? For, <laughs> do you want to have something to yeah. eat? Well, when um, when I was in uh, my double act with Paul F. Taylor, we, when we did Helman Taylor. What year was that? Two thousand and eight. Two thousand eight. Grab- was it 2008 or 2009? 2008. Grab your ca- yeah. That was the year. So I did I Think You Stink. I compared Comedy O'Clock with Hannah George and Katie Wilkins. And then I did um, Helman Taylor. And I think I did something else. But, but I had, like, four, three or four shows, which, you know, when I did last year, everyone was like, you're going to do two shows? And I was like, yeah, I used to do four, right? <laughs> and then, because, you know, you just think, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, but me and Paul, the, the Olympics were on that year. And so we would fly up, but we were in this pub that was in the middle of nowhere. So we'd never get an audience. Or if we did, we'd get, like, three people in. But normally we'd just cancel and watch the Olympics. <laughs> so we'd, we'd go to the pub for midday. I think it was a midday show. So we'd go to the pub, we'd meet up in the pub, and then we'd watch the Olympics for an hour, and then we'd go off about our day. But, like, when we did do a show, we'd, like, we'd drive to Oxford to do the Oxford Glee, or I think it was Jonglers then. So we'd drive to Oxford, die on our asses, and then we'd get back in the car and drive home again. <laughs> and we'd just talk about what a terrible gig it was. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you don't take it personally. But if you are on your own and you go to Oxford, it's the loneliest train journey ever on the way home. But when you're with someone, it's kind of, it, it, you know... Yeah. You, it's not that you've got someone to share the blame. It's like you've got someone to sort of, like, um, uh, you know, discuss. Yeah, like and it how, does, I think it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it matters when there's someone else there, because I don't think it does matter. I think when you're on your own, you make it matter. You make it more important. But actually, it's fine. You've sort of tried yeah. your best. didn't work out. They weren't on the same wavelength. You've gone home. It's fine. Yeah. But I think when you're with, when you're on your own, it just becomes this kind of, well, that was awful. I don't know why I'm doing this. What have I done this for? It seems all the other times when that stuff worked must have been a mistake. But this audience have seen through it, and they can see the real. Uh, they can actually see it's terrible. Yeah. Well, that's it, isn't it? You've been found out. Yeah. But, but whereas when you're with someone else, because you've discussed it and you've planned it and you've done it before, 
you know, you've got like a barometer to go kind of like, oh, yeah, well, we did exactly the same as we normally did it and it didn't work, or we did it exactly the same as we normally did it and it was really great. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, whereas when you're on your own, you're like, well, I must have done something completely different today. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so I, I, um, I don't miss gigging, but I do miss um, uh, an income. <laughs> so, um, so, but, when, when things are going to get back to normal, and they keep talking about it now, you've got these possibilities of vir- um, vaccines and things. And uh, yesterday I saw that um, the physicist Brian Cox is doing a tour that begins next October, and I went, well, he must know. Right? You <laughs> must have some idea. Sorry, well, that's yeah. October 2021. An arena. Some, th- some theatre has uh, tweeted that um, I'm performing in March. And I was like, am I, though? <laughs> Go on. Am I? Am I going to be there in March? <laughs> hmm. We'll see. We'll see. Very well, optimistic. We will see. Possibly. Possibly, yeah. We will see. Yeah. Anyway, so what have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? The thing I have been most a fan of this week is a Bing Crosby movie from 1944 called Going My Way. Uh, and it's one of the most like wholesome, positive, joyful films I've seen in a long time. And uh, Bing Crosby plays like a progressive priest who gets assigned um, to a parish with an older priest. And um, nothing bad happens in the whole film. It's just, like, there's peril, and the director almost makes it seem like there is peril about to happen, but nothing bad happens. It was great. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) It was so, like, as this thing's like, oh, well, this might happen. It doesn't happen. It's fine. Someone might get uh, hurt, someone might get ill, but they're going to be all right. Someone goes missing, they get found immediately. It's mild peril, and it's so reassuring and nice, I'd recommend it to anyone in the Christmas season. And I became a bit obsessed with it. I went, I, I generally thought, this is the best film I've seen in ages, and there's a sequel to it that came out the following year called The Bells of St Mary's, where oh, right. um, Bing Crosby plays the same priest who this time goes to a Catholic school that's run by nuns and he meets uh, Ingrid Bergman, who's the the main nun at the school. And um, it is, it's got this thing about the what the peril is always is often someone, what it boils down to in that film is whether or not someone's going to tell a lie or not. And so the peril is really small, but the... Uh, the emotion put into it is so much that you're so involved in the story. It's a bit like when we're talking about Emma and saying how in that you've got this sort of um, old-fashioned idea of um, manners and things and that being a huge, a huge plot point in it. It feels a bit like that. It's almost that, will these good people do the right thing or not? And what is the right thing to do if the assumption is, of course, that these priests and nuns are always trying to do the same, the right thing, and how that's challenged. Um, and it's really, like, it feels really sort of fluffy in a way, but I feel like it isn't, and it's almost that you could be really cynical about it and not really enjoy it and just think it's a complete bit of fluff, but it doesn't feel like that. They feel like the stakes of it still feel quite high, 
even though nothing major is happening. And it's so reassuring. I love it. So is it black and white or colour? Black and white. What year was it made? 1944. 1944. Who directed it? Uh, It's a guy called Leo McCarry, who afterwards I was going, who's this guy? And he does seem like a really interesting director. Uh, But he was the guy who directed a lot of the Marx Brothers movies in the 20s and 30s. Right, right. And then he sort of makes... He's constantly making these sort of light comedies. But he's always... You sort of get the impression that they do feel quite authored as well. Like, he's definitely got a a horse in the race with these um, in these films. Right. So did you watch the sequel, then? Yeah, I've watched both of them. This week? Yeah. The sequel, I'd say, I didn't enjoy it as much. And they sort of feel slightly different, but they're both good in different ways. And the sequel's almost a bit like... um, It's got bits of it that are a bit like The Office or something. It's almost like documentary realism. And there's a great bit in the sequel, which feels like a really early um, example of it, where they have, like, a nativity play in it at the school. And the nativity play is done by these, like, five-year-old kids. But it's like it's ad-libbed. They're absolutely... Like, it feels totally genuine that these kids are right. doing this nativity and they're, you know, making up their own dialogue and things. Yeah. And it's really sweet and really kind of cute to have these, like five-year-old American kids in the 40s who you're now thinking, that guy's like 80. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah. But it's really... And, it, it, again, it just feels... Like, there's lots of bits of, like that in it which feel really um, almost kind of realist acting um, from these kids. And, yeah, the kids in it all seem quite genuine, like they're just real kids that they've, uh, they've taken off the streets or something. And it, it's great. Yeah. Whereas in, you've got kids as well in Going My Way, but they feel, again, quite nice, again, but they very much feel like American acting kids. They're a bit like, why are you out there? But they're quite, you know, it's quite sweet in its own way. It's like almost sure. like chalk and cheese, and they're a year apart, but they're, it's essentially, it is, it's, one's a sequel to the other one, so, but they're quite uh, different in tone. And the same director. Same director. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that um, it's kind of like a follow-up. Hmm. But it's it's not like oh we're going to make the same film again. No, yeah, exactly. I call it a sequel. Yeah, they've just used the same character. And mm. the first one was like it, again, it's sort of interesting that going my way. Like when you look it up, it's like oh yeah, that year it swept the Oscars, and it got like best film, best director, best actor. It just got everything, and you think it's weird. I've never heard of this film, yeah. and it, at the time it was obviously massive, absolutely huge. Um, so, but then it would have been at the end of the war. Yeah, well, it's it's um, it's sort of during the war, which is another thing of it, where you're you're watching it in that context, and there's things now that wouldn't sort of move you, but you you really get put into that time period watching it, and there's bits where it reminds you at points that there's a war happening, and it really it's a bit like a bolt from the blue, and you go, oh yeah, and you think this must have been an experience of the people watching it as well, but. It's a really fluffy thing, and everything's fine. And then when it really wants to sort of make an emotional push, it just reminds you that right now, when you're watching this, there's a war going on. And it's got this great thing. It's just a great thing about generations as well, because he's like a young priest in it, and he's dealing with an older priest, and there's lots of these relationships that are like multi-generational storylines in it, fathers and son and things. And it's kind of this idea about, is this younger generation... Who are, you know, 
Bing Crosby, who you like people of our generation think of this old person, whereas then he's like this young man, and he's progressive in this in the Catholic Church. And the whole thing is about like, is this younger generation as good or as brave as the previous generation? And it's that sort of it plays with all those ideas as well, like, um, uh, and it sort of reminds you that actually the younger generation are all at war currently. So most of them are. It's that sort of fathers and sons thinking their kids are like bums, whereas a lot of them are in you know fighting the Second World War at that time. Right. It's really I don't know. It's quite it, and it's it's sort of genuinely quite moving and really. It really got every all the things it's trying to pull, all the emotional threads really, really work, and they really work after, you know, seventy odd years or whatever. It's just like, they, it yeah. really, really nails it. But it's a comforting film that yeah. was made during a war, mm. and now, and now we're in an international crisis. Mm. Yeah. So, so do, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. it was made. It was made specifically for like moments. That's like right, that. and I think actually. It's probably something we don't really do anymore, whereas actually it's probably what people want to watch. You know what I mean? No one really makes films like this that are kind of... Uh, yeah, it's comforting, and it's like saying... And it's basically... It's, it is like that, because it's saying everything's mad right now, but it's all right. Everyone's trying to do the right thing. It's, it's got that kind of almost like Aaron sorkin thing of that. Like, everyone... These people are all just trying to do their best in difficult circumstances... It's one of those kind yeah. of work really well. Really, really what I wanted to watch, and I didn't know I wanted to watch it. So was it on TV? No, I'd read about The Bells of St Mary's, and I wanted to watch that because I, I'm always intrigued by that film because it's the film that's playing at the um, Bedford Fall Cinema and It's a Wonderful Life. So I'm always like, what, is that a made-up film or is that a real film? And when you So look- in It's a Wonderful Life... Yeah. They're showing Bing Crosby films. Yeah, at the cinema. You don't ever see clips of it, but when he goes past the cinema there, the film that's right. shown is Bells of St Mary's. See, I've heard of the Bells of St Mary's, but I've not heard of the other one. Yeah, and it's weird. The Bells of St Mary's is the sequel. It's not even the one that won all the awards and things. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's great. I'd really recommend it. And I'd really recommend it to people who probably think that they might not like it as well. <laughs> who's not gonna like it i don't know it just feels like i always think saying something like oh watch this bing crosby film from 1944 and a lot of people are going nah (laughs) yeah but it's great like you've kind of made your decision before you've kind of do you know what i mean i think to it you'd probably like it yeah nobody nobody accidentally sits down and watches a bing crosby film Hmm. it's a decision that you've made and you did it. You did it twice. <laughs> yeah, but I think I'm the kind of person that would watch a Bing Crosby film. Oh yeah, I, uh, yeah. I mean, but I, I'd probably watch it if it was on TV or something. But um, but it's a weird one for you to sort of like sit down and sort of like see. It was that really just going backwards that I sort of became a bit like interested in. I love it's a wonderful life, and actually that's the closest film to both of them I can think of in sure. comparable kind of movies. Um, and if you yeah, if you like It's a Wonderful Life, you will like this film. I will. Did you ever? It. Did you ever see The Majestic? No, I've never seen it. You've never seen The Majestic? Oh, yeah, it's um, it's not very good. 
<laughs> but it's, uh, that's the uh, Frank Darabont, Jim Carrey movie about... Um, uh, it's sort of like... What's the... I'm going to be... I'm going to be a wanker now. It's like Martin Guerre. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, or Summersby. Summersby. Where it's like a, a guy that comes along and he's mistaken for someone else. And then he opens up a cinema and it changes everyone's life. But the thing about The Majestic, which I was very, very, very fucking excited about, is that Bruce Campbell is in it as a B-movie actor. Weirdly, um, that's the thing I know about it. It's like, I was so excited about it. And when you actually eventually see the film, it's kind of like, oh, oh, it's this. I think when it came out, I remember being quite up for it. And I think when it came out, everyone was like, nah, it's no good. It's not, yeah, it's, well, it's not that it's, it's not, it's not that it's no good. It's just, yeah, it kind of, it's aiming to be that feel good, it's a wonderful life type thing. But it's sort of like, it's a bit jaggedy. And it kind of like, or maybe it's, maybe it's too, like sentimental. Like it's it, like it's trying to do a thing, and you can see like all of the moving parts to it, where it's kind of like, and now we're gonna make you feel emotional, and you know you can see like the workings of it as I you're wonder, watching it. And yeah, it, I wondered that watching these films, that are they, um, are we able to make these films now? It just, or is the audience is too cynical? I don't know. So it made me think there's no reason this wouldn't work for a modern audience, almost with a, a virtually identical script. It just was like, this is like really, it feels really solid and like mainstream and everyone would like it, I think. And you wouldn't really need to change much about it for it to work for a modern audience, I think. But, but what films... They will. I can't think of an equivalent film that's like it. Or like Forrest Gump. I suppose, I suppose that's as close, but it doesn't quite feel the same either, does it? It feels like, I don't know. I don't know what what would what would what was the last kind of modern feel good movie. I mean, I suppose you get that sometimes in like romantic comedies and things. You get a kind of they do make them, but they're normally really, really, really low budget and probably don't have a wide theatrical release. You know, you don't kind of get those big star-driven kind of, like, feel-good films yeah. anymore. That's normally, like, indie films that do that. But it's, like, stuff like... Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like... They've been, um, this is going to be, like, quite a dated reference, but it's stuff like Little Miss Sunshine, mm. where you go, ah, oh, it's a feel-good family. Do you know what I mean? It's ne Also, you're, nev you're never going to make, um, like, a feel-good, international, Oscar-winning, smash-hit bestseller about a Catholic priest... Yeah. In, this, in this day and age, it's sort of like out. It's outdated. It's too quaint. Yeah. But um, even then, it feels like it's. You know, that's what that's. What, it's one of those things that reminded me. You go, oh yeah, I forget there was a time you'd make a film about a, a Catholic priest, and it'd just be mm. about this guy who's trying to do his best, and he's a nice guy. If there was any film about a priest now, you go, but that's grim, because there's just like if it, if the priest is the main star, you think, oh, I bet that's a grim movie. I don't want to. Yeah, buckle up when I go and see that one. Have to be. Well, did you watch? Did you watch that um, Paul Schrader film? No, uh, with e Ethan Hawke. What's no. it called? First Reformed. Yeah, that is great. <laughs> it's really good. It's like it's great. Um, I just because uh, it was sort of like a, um, it was about a priest, and I was just kind of like, eh, it's not really my sort of thing. I don't really want to watch a film about a priest. 
and then I watched it, and yeah, it was great. Really enjoyable. But I watched it ages ago, and maybe I'm misremembering it. <laughs> um, got... I mean, everyone, I've heard only good things about it. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of really enjoyed it. It sort of takes you in a place, you can, you know, it's taking you down a place where you don't really want to go. And then, and then it takes you there and you're like, fucking hell. Wow. Like you feel sort of exhausted by it, by the end of it. So that's the sort of films they make about priests now. Is, uh, is... he sing a song? Say that again? Sing a song at any point? Does he sing a song? Yeah. Uh, n- not really. Okay. No. All right. No. Um, but speaking of singing a song... Oh, why lovely. Don't we, why don't we play a song and, uh, and then uh, we'll carry on talking in about four and a half minutes' time. You're really good at this, Nick. This is such good work. Thanks. We're working together. <laughs> Janice said when she was just five years old There was nothing happening at all Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Ah, and there you go. That is the new Alice Cooper single, Rock and Roll, from his upcoming album, which is released in February, called Detroit Stories. And I think it's fucking awful. (laughs) Um, It's it's a Velvet Underground cover, so it was originally written by Lou Reed. And I didn't know that when I first heard it. I was just like, what? So I've got, a, I've got a nasty feeling that Detroit Stories is going to be a cover album. Because it, why would you release this as a single? So I think it's going to be a covers album um, where he's covering, like, uh, all Detroit bands. So, like, Iggy Pop and stuff like that. Um, and um, I've got... Yeah, so I've got a feeling it's going to... Oh, God. Anyway, so the original version, it kind of... Because it's Lou Reed, there's a really t- it's a really weird rhyme structure where he goes... So the, every, every verse is four lines long, and it goes, all, 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 roll. Yeah? And then it goes, all, 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 roll. And you go, well, all and roll don't rhyme with each other. Right? But the way Lou Reed sings it, he sort of, like, masks it a little bit so that it kind of feels oh, like... Oh, you've gone. And I think he's... I've gone. Oh, no, you're back, you're back. I think his voice is great on it, but I just think... And then the, the chorus, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. I mean, he's reviewed his own song. <laughs> it's kind of like... Well, it's 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 OK, but um, I don't... I think it's... I think it's sort of like I'm such a huge fan, and he is—he has got such a like he's got such a great sense of humour. And when he writes songs, you know, they're a real treat to sort of like get a new Alice Cooper song. And so it all feels like a bit of a waste that he's releasing cover versions. Maybe it's because of lockdown and that he hasn't—he's—he's he's been finding it difficult to um, be creative. Uh, in lockdown too, but I don't know. Anyway, anyway, not going to go on loads. I'm not going to bash him. It's not. It's not a bad idea to do a, a, a cover album of Detroit-based people because it's a, you know that's a rich theme you could mine with that. I think, but I sure. think I wonder what he's going for as someone who's like, I mean, maybe the aim of an album can just be to do an album for the sake of it, and maybe. Uh, Maybe there isn't any higher purpose to it, but I do wonder where he's at in his career. What 
what the purpose is to do an album like that, really. I think he's I think he's constantly sort of um trying to um trying to sort of explain or put a stake in his legacy and where he's from and he's trying to kind of like like he always goes on and on about um oh yeah John Lennon was a really big fan of mine he re- he thought elected was his favorite song um, and it's kind of like, it doesn't really mean anything if you're telling that story yourself. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of like, so he's always trying to constantly say, oh, I was with that group. So I was kind of like with John Lennon and uh, and um, Keith Moon uh, and Mickey Dollins. And it's kind of like, so he's always kind of, so I think that while he's doing kind of like this thing, he's kind of saying, I'm in the same bracket as Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. And um, and I think so. That's kind of what what he's I doing. That, though. And I think also he's a much. I don't think he's a maligned singer by any means or or artist. But I do think he's got much more to him, as you've demonstrated, than I would have thought. You know, and it's not like it's not. He's never someone I I disliked, and I always liked. I always liked him, and I always liked to see him interviewed, and I always liked his hits. I thought they're always a lot of fun, but he has got a lot more going for him. And I think, you know, in the time when I wasn't really aware of him, that he really is like, you do going through his albums and things, you do go, oh, that's really interesting. Or that doesn't sound like what I imagine an Alice Cooper mm. song would sound like. But, but he, also, it, it's sort of difficult to, the context of it is that in 1975, he was the biggest star on the entire planet. Mm. Like, there was no one bigger than Alice Cooper. Like, he was, so it's kind of difficult to put that in context because in the 80s, he was kind of like, he was like um, suffering from like substance abuse and alcoholism and drug and drug abuse. And so it's kind of like he disappeared for a large period of the 80s and then he sort of like came back at the end of the 80s and he never sort of, he had poison and stuff like that, but he never really kind of like reclaimed the biggest star on the planet status. Oh. So it's kind of like... And then he he only released like um, I think like two albums in the nineties, and then he sort of like did a live album. So he didn't do anything. He did like I think um, Hey Stupid was nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety one, and then Last Temptation was ninety four, and then he didn't do anything until Brutal Planet in two thousand. So it's kind of like I guess it's. But then he he's chasing something. Then isn't he? He's trying to play music. What's he's trying to play the modern music that the kids like. I guess by that. Well, that's because that's what that's what we had last week. Natalie was saying that it sounded like Marilyn Manson, and you go, yeah, yeah, because Marilyn Manson was really big when he released that album, and he was trying to do like an industrial industrial metal album. Mm. But um, yeah, but like in the seventies, he was the guy that was inventing stuff, and then in the two thousands, he was sort of chasing what other people were, and also in like he did like a new wave album in the early eighties which was kind of like, well, that's what's big at the moment, New Wave. And he did sort of like some punky stuff, and you're kind of like, well, that's what's big at the moment. So he was sort of like chasing, chasing the trends. On Korea ...and find that that's basically what they've done as well. You know, most yeah. people... Sure. It's like when Cher started using... Um, okay. uh, the vocoder. Um, anyway, uh, so that's that. Uh, so what have I seen this week? I saw... Da, 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 I saw the... I watched on Friday the 13th... Oh, yeah. I watched uh, the Friday the 13th remake. Oh, yeah. How is it? Um, so that was 2009. 
um, the, I think it's such a good idea for for a remake. Because basically, the original Friday the Thirteenth spoiler alert um, is not basic is not what you think it is. You know, so um, so the killer in Friday the Thirteenth, the original, is uh, Mrs. Voorhees, Jason's mum. And Jason doesn't really become like a main character until Friday the 13th 2, where he wears a sack over his head. And then in Friday the 13th 3, that's when he finds the hockey mask. So it's kind of like it, it, what you think of, you know, for the layperson as, oh, well, Friday the 13th is a franchise about Jason Voorhees with a hockey mask. That doesn't really come about until the third film. So as a remake, what they've done is they've gone... Right, well, we'll just take what everyone knows about Friday the 13th. So there's teenagers, and they all do drugs and have um, sex, and they drink beer, and then they all get murdered by Jason Voorhees. And they sort of, like, they do... The first film is like a flashback right at the beginning, and then the first section is him wearing a sack over his head, and then they, and then they introduce the hockey mask... And, and so you kind of like, it's like everything that you know about the Friday the 13th films all rolled into one, um, and we're kind of trying to make the ultimate Friday the 13th film. Mm-hmm. Now, it is shit. <laughs> so that's the problem, yeah. you know? To be honest, not, when you said it, I thought, that's how you'd do the, the remake. You'd do it exactly like that. It's a really clever, good way of doing the remake, because you go, right, we're not going to remake a specific film. We're going to remake the vibe of what you think a Friday the 13th film is and kind of do it. Now, the problem with it is it's fucking lazy. And, um, but it's, it's really weirdly structured as well because basically um, they do a pre-credits sequence uh, where there's a group of teenagers that go to Camp Crystal Lake uh, to find some marijuana uh, and, uh, and, and sell it, right? And so you've got, like, five five teenagers, six teenagers, they all go camping, and then they all get killed, and it's 25 minutes, and then after the 25-minute mark, the title comes up, and it says Friday the 13th, yeah? So basically what they've done is they've shown you that you can make a Friday the 13th film from beginning to end in 25 minutes, and then the bulk of the film for the next hour and a quarter is that again only slower, over an hour and 15 minutes. And so it's just kind of like, you go, well, you, you, haven't, you haven't taken... You know, you've shown us what we think a Friday the 13th film is in 25 minutes, and then for the rest of the film, what you should do is you should subvert that and do something completely, like, crazy, because for all of the fans of the franchise, you've kind of scratched that itch. You've seen kind of, like, what a Friday the 13th film is, and now you can kind of, like, do something different. But... Uh, they don't. They just do it again. And it's kind of like, all right. And then there's stuff like um, uh, Jason Voorhees has got a house and he's got an attic. And in the attic, he's got, like, all of the bikes and stuff that he's collected from all the people that he's killed over the years. And you go, that's kind of like a nice idea. Um, and then he's got, like, the sack over his head. And then somebody punches him and the sack comes off. And he's just about to put the sack back on his head. And then he moves something and he sees a hockey mask in his attic. And then he puts that on, right? And it's kind of like he just finds it in his attic. And then about 20 minutes later, there's a scene where there's a guy that's got all this sports equipment and he picks up a hockey stick and he starts, like, playing with a basketball and a hockey stick. And you go, well, surely you should have put the hockey mask with all of that stuff 
introduced that early, you know, and then he could have taken the hockey mask from there. But what you've done is you've kind of like you've you haven't you haven't you haven't made any connection. There's not like an iconic moment where he finds the hockey stick. You know, introduce a character that's obsessed with hockey, have them wearing a hockey mask, right? And they're playing the hockey mask, and then Jason goes to attack him, he hits him in the head with the hockey stick. He pulls the hockey stick away and the sack comes off his face. He sees Jason Voorhees, shits himself. Jason Voorhees gets the machete, cuts his head off, right? You see his head with the hockey mask land on the ground. Then he picks up the head, throws it in a bin, and then the next thing you know, he puts the hockey mask on. And then you go, right, I just made that up. Do you know what I mean? And that's better than what's in the film. And so, and so, um, so you've got these... This film where you've got like you know a bunch of unlikable characters that are all basically there just so that they can get killed in creative ways, and there's no story. It's literally six people go to go camping, and um, and and they get they get killed one by one. So there's no story. So all that all that you're looking for, and Jason is 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 different in a way because he's not particularly. I don't think Jason is particularly scary when you compare him to like the other you know supervillains. So I don't think he's particularly scary. So what you've got is he's basically your hero, right? So, so if if so, you've got this film where the bad guy is the hero. You're meant to hate basically all of the good guys, all of the kids. You're meant to hate them and basically just be um, waiting for them to all, all get killed. I think there's one really good death in it, and then all of the others are just sort of like just generic so you go well why are we watching it because you knew you had the benefit of having 11 friday the 13th films before you made this you you knew that it's all about the kills and they're the most boring generic kills there's one really really good one uh, which is funny and um and grim um uh it's uh, there's a woman underneath um a, a jetty and he stabs her in the head and he pulls her out and she's topless and then she slides off the machete and she sort of like bobs back into the water. It's funny, right? But that's it. And so it's kind of like, well, what's the point in making this film? Because you've got one job, which is to to kill your cast of teenagers. And it's it's done in such a generic, boring way. And there's, you know, there's a bit when they're having a fight in a garage um, and they, they do a shot of a circular saw, right, in the garage that's kind of like a power tool thing. And it, th- that doesn't get used. And then um, they're all in the house going, well, where's that guy gone? So someone goes out to look for him in the garage again. They do another shot of the circular saw, and they never use the circular saw. So it's kind of like, well, all right, OK. But then also by that, by that account is um, it would have taken like 40 minutes for them to notice that the, the guy was missing. So the guy goes back, so his mate goes to the garage to look for him, and Jason's what? He's been waiting in the garage for 40 minutes for someone else to turn up. It's like, why is Jason just hanging around in a garage? And then there's another bit where they introduce a wood chipper, and it's kind of like, uh, you go, right, well, someone's got to die in the wood chipper. And then they don't. Nobody dies in the wood chipper. And you go, well, what's the point in introducing a wood chipper? You know, everyone's going to leave disappointed because you've shown a wood chipper and then nobody gets killed by the wood chipper. So the that next day... Like, it is a joke where you introduce something and then deliberately make a big point of not using it. Yeah, but the alternative to what... The alternative with what they actually end up doing mm. 
is kind of like basically Jason has a chain wrapped around his neck and it gets sucked into the wood chipper and the wood chipper stops working just as he gets to the do you know what I mean so it's like they set it up and then they don't do it and so um so it's kind of like it's just it's just it's just sort of lazy and it's kind of really sort of a wasted opportunity because you go you've done it almost the perfect way to do it uh, but you've kind of like um, you've messed it up in the in the execution. Um, so so on Saturday the fourteenth, um, I watched Halloween, the original Halloween, um, and I never really go back to that. I'm, obviously, I'm a huge John Carpenter fan, but in a way, Halloween is kind of like because there are so many slasher movies. Um, uh, it's kind of like I always feel like Halloween because it's the first one. It's like almost quite tame by comparison to all the others. So I never really go back and watch it that often. But I rewatched the original Halloween, and it's everything that Friday the Thirteenth isn't. It's kind of got a, it's got a good story. You've got um, Doctor Loomis, who's like a compelling main character. You've got Laurie Strode, who's great. You know, so you've got Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee Curtis, who are like your main characters that you care about. Uh, you you like all of the babysitters, you know, all three of those girls. You like them all. You don't want them to die. There's only three deaths, I think, in the or four, including the guy with the pickup truck that, that's off camera. It's genuinely scary. Michael Myers is a terrifying kind of character. So I rewatched it, and I was just like, oh my god, I've completely sort of underestimated how brilliant Halloween one is. Um, and I ab- yeah, I absolutely loved it. Um, I'm not a big and it's, slasher movies, really, but I love Halloween. I mean, I, I think it is. I think that's head and shoulders above other things like it. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's really spooky and terrifying. I really like the build-up to it and how he's just there and how you see him in the neighbourhood. And I like that you don't really know anything about him and he's he's slightly kind of... There's an element to him where he just seems to be unstoppable... I really like all that. It's it's quite creepy that he's he, you just can't be stopped. Whatever you do to him, he's always coming back. He's always there. And, and he never really had the um, the star power of someone like Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger because Freddy Krueger's obviously got the personality, and Jason Voorhees is like this unstoppable killing machine. But he's basically the hero of the franchise because he's the only one that's consistently through it. Mm. So so I think that with Michael Myers, even though the film's got a bit shit. He was always kind of like this mysterious, scary... Do you know what I mean? He never really lost his scariness. Mm. So even when you see something like H2O, um, uh, I think H2O is a brilliant sequel. It's basically, it's Halloween 3. Mm. So you've got Halloween, Halloween 2, and then you've got Season of the Witch. Then you've got this three-part sequel, uh, three-part trilogy, where four, five, ten years later they made six, and then they made Halloween H2O where they ignored... Two, they ignored three, four, five, and six, and then they did a sequel there, and then they did Halloween Resurrection, which is terrible. I don't think I've even seen Halloween Resurrection, um, but yeah, hey, of course, it's it's got Buster Rhymes, Kung Fu kicking Michael Myers to death. Yeah, it's like it's mad to do it after Halloween H two O. It's like they've learned nothing. It's like, yeah, like they absolutely nail H two O, and then they make a sequel to that, which is appalling. Um, anyway, the original Halloween. Amazing. I also watched Doctor Sleep, but that is... I mean, it was so boring, and it's its bonkers that they... that you, You're watching it going, this is a sequel 
to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, how are you doing a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? How are you doing a sequel to that? It's also based on the Stephen King book, and Stephen King hated the film. So it's just, it's, 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 it's really crazy, but it's also, yeah, I, I, I did. I did so what, like, I'm confused because there seems to be director's cuts and all sorts, and it's like, I don't even know what the one is I'm supposed to watch anymore. Could be. It was two and a half hours long, and it just went, it felt like, it felt like it was a mini-series. It was just like, it went on and on and on. Anyway, do some fan mail. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we got Brian, uh, Brian Johnson's here. Uh, how you doing, Brian? I'm all right, thank you very much. So, dear Nathan sidekick, cheeky, I recently rewatched A Hard Day's Night, one of my favourite films, and it got me thinking, what's your favourite acting performance from a pop star musician, Adam Aldgate, East London? Um, what is your hmm. favourite? Uh, Adam from Aldgate and East London, he's quite close to me, is uh, uh, Adam. Not far we, haven't got, we haven't got time for you to do this now. Answer the question. <laughs> I like. I really like Adam Faith. I've been watching Budgie on Talking Pictures, and I was just saying today, what a great actor Adam Faith is. Oh yeah! Did you ever watch Love Hurts with Zoe yeah. Watermaker? Yeah, yeah, I loved. Yeah, I loved that. that. That's always like a reference point where you go, "It's grown up TV." You know, when I was pitching Elephant, I was like, "We want to make something grown up, like like Love Hurts." Um, yeah, I like that. Uh, of course, um, Alice Cooper plays Freddy Krueger's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street Six but that is a rubbish film. Um, <laughs> so I wouldn't say it's my favourite. Oh, but, like, uh, Alice Cooper in Wayne's World, that's a really great... That's a really great scene. Mm -hmm. um, but it wouldn't be Alice Cooper. I don't know. It's funny, Richard Lester was going to make uh, The Three Musketeers with The Beatles. Mm. It was originally... I can't remember who was... Maybe it was Ringo that was D'Artagnan? Yeah, I mean... Maybe. It's got to be Ringo. It's got to be Ringo that it was D'Artagnan, right? Well, I kind of think George is the younger one, isn't he? So maybe they'll get George as the younger... No, no. I reckon it would have definitely been Ringo. Would have been good as well. I reckon I can yeah. imagine... Would have, been, would have been brilliant. Hi, Nick and Matt. How are you doing, boys? What have you watched this week? That's what the show is. I mean, you can't, you can't ask us what we've been watching this week at the end of that segment. Okay. What have you watched this week? I've recently watched 1922 on Netflix with my boyfriend. He's now so scared of rats that he jumps at any noise. He thinks we are surrounded by evil rats, just like in the film. Have you watched 1922? Shall I give him a pet rat for Christmas? I think it would be a perfect gift. What do you think? I have watched 1922. I watched it a couple of weeks ago. Um... It's brilliant. Never heard of it. Is this? Oh, it's it's a Steve. I think it's. I think it's a Stephen King film. It's got Thomas Jane in it. Is it Thomas Jane? I think it's got Thomas Jane in it, um, and it's about like uh, rats. Uh, uh, is it a brilliant film? I I did actually I did actually really enjoy it. It's a very slow burn. It's basically a guy makes a bad decision, and then the whole film is just his life just like falling apart, and it's really bleak and like it's depressing, but. It's pretty good. Um, Dear Nick and Nat. Oh, yeah, get him a rat for Christmas. Dear Nick and Nat, what's up? I recently got into watching documentaries about the Tudors. I'm shocked at how brutal and nasty they were. Have you got a favourite favorite historical period? Thanks, Tom. Um, I like the period that we're living in now. <laughs> it's fucking awful, isn't it? It's fucking, fucking awful. Like hey, lovely boys. What's your favourite period in history? 2019, before doing my tax return, I go, that was good, wasn't it? 2019? Yeah. Sure. 
Hey, lovely boys, have you watched the new season of The Crown? Oh my God, it's so good. My favourite character is Princess Margaret, played by Helena Bonham Carter. She's so savage. Oh, sorry, mate. My favourite character is Princess Margaret. Played by Helena Bonham Carter. She's so savage. Are you fans of the royal family? Who is your favourite royal? Cheers. My favourite royal's Prince Andrew, I think. Oh, I like it. I guess, uh, yeah, what, what, a, what a hero. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, well, I haven't watched The Crown. Um, I'm kind of, like, a bit conflicted because um, uh, Gillian Anderson plays Margaret Thatcher and I used to be so in love with Gillian Anderson in the 90s. And now uh, I am feeling... Uh, Conf- conflicted in my penis. So, um, <laughs> hello, you silly turkeys. Loved the interview with Deep a Deal last week. Iconic. Would you like to speak to the biggest name in Lapland? I have links. Thanks, Terry and Scunthorpe, Chris. So that's it. Um, uh, who's the biggest name in Lapland? Is that Santa Claus? Presumably Santa Claus. Okay, cool. Um, I, no idea. Uh, we've got. I guess. I guess. Our guest is here now, so um, we should um, uh, play a song, have a wee, and get our guest on. <laughs> Fan club on Bar Radio. And, and, and we're back. We're back live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded on a Wednesday, and we're in the studio. We're not in the studio. I'm in my living room, and Nat is in his washroom. And we're joined now by living legend Griff Reese Jones. Uh, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm having a good look because they don't know that we're seeing each other on Zoom. So I'm having a look at your living room behind you there, Nick, yes. and I'm seeing all sorts of interesting bits and bobs and things like that, all sort of collection of memorabilia of one kind or another. You're my target audience. Yes, um, I, I, I've, I've basically had a slow breakdown over lockdown and I've put it all on my walls and this is, this is like a visual representation of my brain. Do you know, so, that's exactly, then, but Nick, that's exactly what I did. I I'm resistant for many years because my mate Mel, who sadly passed, you know, uh, or failed, as perhaps we should say, uh, he he, you know, used to have used to visit his house and he'd have all the trophies up on the wall, you know, and I I've always found that a little bit naff, you know, when you go and visit, you know, posters from the Palladium and stuff like that. And then the lockdown came and I started sort of shifting through stuff and like a crazy man, I thought, oh, well, what's the point of having it in a cup? I might as well stick it up on the wall and now i've got a room in my house which is just like a very bad representation of a wasted life in the 80s sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i think if you've got it if you've got it flaunt it, isn't it? Yeah, just, yeah. Uh... yeah it'd be great you know when my grandchildren come in and point to things and say you know what's that grumpy yeah. as they already call me i'll be able to say well you've never heard of you know the saintly rowan atkinson but in those days that sort of thing you know mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good moment to get people talking about me which is of course what we like their best of all this uh, yeah. brings us very neatly to yeah. the main things to talk about which is yeah. your celebrity bottom draw auction that you're organizing which is yes that isn't it isn't it things that 
you've sort of had lying around? Is that the idea? Oh, did you notice the link there? (laughs) 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 I hoped it wasn't that obvious. Yes, no, I have, yes. I've done what I... Because one of the things that I did clear out, and that's sort of what happens to me, and uh, people of my age, if you're like me and you start... The point about lockdown was spending too long in this house with nothing to do, finding myself going into cupboards and going, look at all this junk. So um, I'm involved with uh, East Anglian... uh, uh, children's hospices, and they're a very good organisation each, and they they have sort of hospices, and they do ama- an amazing work, uh, a fantastic service, which isn't paid for, interestingly, by the government. They put a little bit in. It's not a national health service thing. It's a thing which offers a sort of uh, helping hand, mostly, to parents, you know, and they're not nothing to be frightened of, because people think hospice death, you know, but it's not. Hospice is really about life and getting the most out of available life. Anyway, they're great things. And last year, I've done a few shows over the years, you know, for them. But of course, this is the nature of being, you know, getting on in years and finding that you're not, how can I put this? I, You know, once I was a tour de force and now I'm forced to tour. You've probably heard that, haven't you? Um, so, <laughs> no. It's a good one. And it does sum That's up good. what happens to you as life goes on. Anyway, I tore around, do a show, and I did it for them and started to raise some money. But then I thought, really, we've got to make more than this. This is not, you know, it's barely a drop in the ocean for them. So last year we did a thing called Happy Christmas Ipswich at the Regent Theatre. And mates like Lee Mack and Al Murray and people like that, Andy Parsons came up and did a cracking show. And we put a, a fair slug of money, you know, into them. And then along came this year, and they said, so what are we going to do for Happy Christmas Ipswich this year? And I said, "Um, I'm sorry you're getting the full story from the very, very, very beginning, but this is the way it goes. All right, so I said, well, uh, I tell you, I said, long ago I had this idea for a a site which is a bit like sort of eBay, but for A-listers, you know, uh, and I do know a few. And what it is is for people who, you know, like, like, you know, they start clearing out their cupboards and you have certain people out there, you know, who would go, Good, look at this, what I've got here. I've got this treasure. No, I've got a Rolex watch here and I never wear it. And what the hell, what the hell I'll give it to charity. But of course, they don't want. They don't want to give it to the dump and they don't want to put it on eBay to make money for themselves. We'll offer them that route. And that's what we've done. And would you believe it? Dawn French said, Griff, I've got this Rolex I don't need. <laughs> and so she almost kick-started us. So we've now got 150, we're coming up to about 200 lots. And we're publishing today the full first 150 lots on a catalogue. And in about two weeks from today, on the 27th, I can't think where that is, yeah, that's when the bidding opens and it lasts about a week and people bid for these things and don't worry if they're not all rolex watches they include old scripts bits of uh, if are you a fan of game of thrones well i'm not not a fan of game of thrones wait wait no i'm talking to the wrong person then but if you were if you people are Lots of people are. All right, well, we've got Game of Thrones um, crew um, uh, stuff donated by Jonathan Price and by uh, 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 James Faulkner and people like that. We've got stuff from James Bond. We've got a crew T-shirt. We've got um, scripts and things like that. So we've got a lot of, lot of memorabilia for, what should we call them, fans, you know, that sort of stuff. And we've got it all So out. just 
So just regular people can go on and bid for all this stuff and raise money? Well, that's the idea. I mean, yeah, I, mean I don't I mean, it's not just... I mean, it's not, it would be pointless to put it out just <laughs> for celebrities yeah, to bid for their own so. stuff. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah. we want... We want <laughs> We want what I think. What I think uh, Hugh Grant calls civilians. We want no. We want ordinary people. You know, people like you and me. But I was seeing your your den there, Nick. I'm thinking you're exactly mm. the sort of person. With it. What do? What is it you collect? Because I bet we got something for you. Uh, just I collect cowboy stuff. Oh, cowboys. we got cowboy stuff. We've definitely got. Oh, cowboys. Have you really? Yeah, you really. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't bought any cowboy stuff in a long time, so maybe I'll have a look. Uh, all right, um, yeah, we definitely bought cowboy stuff. I, I quite like the idea of having uh, Dawn French's Rolex, though. Do you? Um, Good. Well, if you get in quick, you might be able to, you know, because the point is, we were at the moment, we got reserves on something. This is true, right? This is what happened to me. I've put in, uh, and I thought this would be a great thing to put in, right? I've put in a coffin. And then I thought, it's only nobody had the courage to say, Griff, that's a tiny bit tasteless to give it. But nonetheless, I did put it in. And it's, um, it was made for me in, when I made a television programme about folk art in Africa, just things I've done in the past. And this was made by Hello Coffins in Accra, where if, if you live in Accra, if you're a big man, right, and you're a sort of you know, top taxi driver or, or you get back buried in a Mercedes or a model Mercedes, just, you know, made of wood, or you, you will say you're a top gang leader, then you get buried in a sort of model of a lion because you're a lion, you know. And so they made me this huge model of a, a television camera. Which is, which is, when you lift the lid off it, it's like something out of Dracula because it's all lined on the inside with that sort of cushion stuff that you have in coffins. And I, you know, I've had it in the back of the garage and I've not been able to do anything with it. <laughs> and I decided, because I'm now as fit as the butchers, whatever, I'm as fit as Boris Johnson, I have decided, you know, obviously I'm not intending to die over the next 10 years and certainly not of COVID. I'll, I'll put that up for auction. So that's a work of art. That's, that's a museum quality work of art. So it's, there is a huge range of stuff in there. Yeah. Was it, was it quite also a nice thing to get rid of because it's quite grim? And if you remind yourself, you go, OK, well, I've been, I've been granted a, a, a casket here. And I, every time I see it, I'm reminded of my own mortality. Maybe I'll get rid of it. Does it feel no, like no, funny enough, I'm not because it's such a joyful thing. I thought that maybe it would suit people because there are a few people. You may know some yourselves who have who can justifiably say that television has effectively killed them. I've got I've got a few friends. <laughs> I've got a few friends who are not with us anymore, but they're quite, who did, I could genuinely say that their achievements in television and the amount of money they made was the end of them. And uh, they sort of, you know, they've departed this life quite, quite much earlier than the average person who had perhaps a less exciting sort of um, you know, series of clubs and late nights to visit. And so, you know, I think there'll probably be a few more who might think I need some when I die. I need to be sort of commemorated in some sort of TV camera type casket. But I don't think of it as a, I think of it as a, it's not, it's not a morbid thing. It's not a morbid thing at all. It's a, the opposite of morbid. It's um, an unmorbid thing. A celebration, a celebration. A celebration, yeah, a celebration of life and achievement. And the measurements on it as well to make sure it would, if you're going, oh, I quite fancy that, have you put the measurements up as if to go, would that well, 
with that's that. all right because you, okay. you wouldn't know this but i'm six foot ten right and so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lying now on the radio i'm lying i'm live and i'm lying um, but uh, so i am no i'm a, i'm an average size so it would suit you know that's another thing it would make a wonderful christmas present wouldn't it have darling you, look what i you, bought you i bought you your casket have you ever got have you ever got in it Many times. Can you imagine when I get it out? Every time I get it out, somebody says, "Griff, would you mind getting in it for a photograph?" You know, there's a sort of that. Yeah, I'm in and out of it all the time. I'm sorry to see it go. It's a great work of art. I'm hoping that the only other places that have them are the Metropolitan Museum of Art in in uh, America, uh, in New York, and of course, the British Museum has got a couple of them. But the truth is, they are you know real museum quality artifacts. But uh, it's going cheap. So if you want a museum quality artifact, something a real com- imagine it as a as a sort of coffee coffee table, you know, in your house. Sure. You know, you can sit. Sure. You put put the sofas around it. It would look very very good in your place, Nick. It would really suit. <laughs> um, I don't know if I've got. I don't know if I've got any room. But yeah, well, sure. you, you shift right. things about a bit. Shift things about. Yeah, sure. All right. I'm being lazy. I'm being lazy. Yeah, absolutely. I think a coffin would look great in my living room. It would be yeah. great. Are um, you a fan of Rod Stewart? Who isn't? Uh, of course, we. Rod has given us a buckle as well. That's good off a belt. And uh, are you a fan of what Pink sort of Floyd? buckle? Well, I don't know what it, we. I have yet to see the buckle, but. This is what happened, is we sent a note to Rod and said, Sir Rod, and said, have you got anything for us? And he said, yes, and then he went all coy about what it was going to be. And apparently it's a sort of handmade buckle for a belt that he has worn in public on a few occasions. So we're, we're overjoyed, overjoyed, because I was just wondering, well, are you looking at you, which sort of, do you go the, I mean, you know, when you play music on your show here, and forgive me, I haven't been listening earlier. So, do you, I mean, do you favour the Rod Stewart's or the sort of, or more the Pink Floyd type things? Or so, I, I only play Alice Cooper songs. Oh, um, right. I've been, I've played a different Alice Cooper song every week for really? two years. Yeah. Oh, right. OK, well, that's no, but, I'm a big fan of Alice Cooper, but he hasn't given me anything. But what about you know, Jerry Dammer? Jerry Dammer's give it. Uh, Andy Fairweather-Lowe, Eric Clapton. Are you a fan of Eric, Eric's? Sure. Well, there we are. Then you must get onto so, my site. We've got so a lot of Eric Clapton memorabilia for sale. What's Pink, what, have Pink, what have Pink Floyd donated? Uh, well, Nick Mason's given me a couple of drum heads, you know, from from because mm. he's the drummer. And as you may remember, Nick, you know, in the heyday of Pink Floyd, he didn't just sit down by a drum kit. He sat down by a sort of, you know, a sort of a, 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 a cage fighter's um, sort of enclosure, an arena of drums. So he's got a fair number of drums, and he started spreading them out. And Rick Waitman has given me a keyboard, which he used during the 80s. And uh, so we've got quite a lot of the old, what I would call, the rock and roll toenails sort of, not toenails. I mean, you know, I mean, what I mean is, you know how <laughs> people love to get stuff which has been touched by the, sure. I mean, Brian May has donated two of his lurid shirts, which he's worn. 
Oh, right. That I can tell, you're, I can tell this. Just, listen to that. That's, you know, that's the noise of, impress, of being impressed. Oh, the you get? Did Is it affordable stuff or is it, or is it just a bid? Is everything, is, are there reserves on things or is it quite... There are, there are reserves on a very, very few, very, very, well, very, very expensive things, which we don't want because I used to do. I raised a lot of money for the Hackney Empire. I've always been involved in this business. Of sort of, you know, don't know why. Once you once you do one, you you do tend to get sucked in. But so um, because this one is online, this auction it's all online. So you go to you go to celebritybottomdraw.com and you find everything you need. Uh, but I've done a lot of live ones, and there when you do those, I remember I was doing one, and we Damien Hurst had given us a, one of his. Spot pictures, you know that sort of thing where he does spots all over the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, we looked it up, and it was worth, you know, ooh, it was worth a lot of money. And when we came to auction it, we were worried because sitting in our audience, you know, Hackney Empire and all that, were a lot of, you know, not extremely wealthy sort of supporters, but supporters. And we noticed that there were two guys sitting in the second row, luckily, who were dealers. And they turned up in order to get the Damien Hurst at a rock-bottom price at the Hackney Art Auction in order to flog it on and make a quick buck. But I was I was canny to them. I could do this, because you know, I've done so many, I could do this sort of taking it off the wall thing, you know, where you pretend to have got a bid off the wall in order to push it up. I did that. I bought it myself by accident. Anyway, but that's... Um, but that's <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful yeah. with these things. But what's yeah, great sure. about this is we've got a thing company called Bidding who are doing it all for us. They're they're very experienced and they're giving it all their services for free. So there's no buyer's premium, there's no seller's premium, you know, there's nothing nothing extra. What you bid is what you bid, and if it wins the item, that's what you get the item. Okay. And you one of the things yeah. you're giving away yourself is a Mont Blanc pen that you've yes. got. From work you did at Hackney Empire, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened to me? Uh, I, what happened to me, right? Was this is a genuine bottom drawer? I'm going through my bottom drawers, thinking I've got to give something here. What else have I got? You know, she started to open all this, and in the drawer is this is 20 years ago when I raised all this money. The company Mont Blanc came and presented me in a big award ceremony with a sort of big, huge, rather. Um, ornate uh, fountain pen with sort of silver twiddly bits, naked silver lady on it. And I was really impressed by this, but, of course, I put it in the drawer where it's been ever since. And I <laughs> I thought, I wonder how much this is sort of thing. This is in my bottle. I never used it, never, not even to write a thank you letter to them, you know, to say thank you for giving me this award. I thought, I'd better have a look at it and see what it, you know, what it is. So I... Um, I went online. It's a very interesting place to go, and discovered that there it was, valued at seven thousand pounds. Wow, for a pen! So, yeah, so for a, and there are apparently out there collectors of fountain pens. Well, this one's brand new, still in its case, unused. You know, so I mean, you've really? never used it. No, never used it. So never... You, you can't tell us what it's like to write with a seven thousand pound pen. I can't. I can tell you what it's like to hold it in your hands and be gifted. <laughs> <it. Right. laughs> but it's such an amazing thing. And I, I just, I looked at it and I thought, now, this is the point where you go, shall I donate this? Because if I donate this, you know, that I could, obviously, I could sell it 
This is the typical dilemma that I wanted to, to get into celebrities for. The dilemma is, if I embarrassingly put it up for sale and Mont Blanc find out about it, do you know what I mean? They go, but we gave that to you for, you know, not for you to make a profit, but for you to treasure. And I have treasured it for 20 years. And I have to say, I've never even knew, I couldn't even remember it was there until I was clearing out the, now I've had a look, there it is. So it's time to re-gift it. And it goes, you know, it'll all serve the cause. That's the point, it'll serve the cause. That's true. I often, I've been given gifts that I don't really want, but I've kept them because I've been given them and you're frightened that someone will find out. This is sort of the perfect solution. All All I have to do now is become famous enough to be able to give them away for charity. And it's the perfect solution of getting rid of stuff you've been given. You don't have to worry, because if you give it to us, it'll make you famous. (laughs) That's how it works. So (laughs) you can be celebrating for having given... I have to say, even worse than that, mate, is the stuff which somebody's given which has got your name written all over it. (laughs) I've got several really... I've got some sort of quite unpleasant woodwork which has been presented to me when I've arrived, you know, like Prince Charles on some television programme. And they presented me with a a lovely sort of plate with my name made of wood carved on it, saying a present from so-and-so. And And you feel, what that can't go to an oxygen, because it will work its way back to these people eventually. They go, look, there's that plate. And he bastard sold it or gave it away. So, yes, it is exactly serving that. that, that And one of these people is uh, Tom Hollander, who has a travel watch that was given to him by Tom Cruise. And I wondered, would Tom Cruise mind if he found out that... Well, I, a know, I hope... I'm glad. I, do you think he would? Well, I think this is the get-out, isn't it? The fact it's for such a good charity means that if he has a problem with it, he can't... In his head, he'd have to justify that, wouldn't he? So he'd be able to say, well, actually, it seems a bit weird that you've given something away that I've given you, but given that it's for such a good cause... Yeah. Let it go. Yeah. And he might even go, which one was that I gave it to? He was in that <laughs> film. <laughs> he might indeed. He, he, might, might. he might do that. But you're quite right. And of course, under those circumstances, I'm rather hoping, very much hoping, in fact, that they kick up a fuss. <laughs> because then we'd make the front page of all the newspapers in the country and people would rush to try and acquire it, wouldn't they? So that's, you know, I see there's no such thing under these circumstances. Bad, because what he's also given, and this we have to be very careful about this, very quiet, he's also given us the, his working copies of Pirates of the Caribbean, which he was in, right, the scripts. And I got a phone call from a mate, Neil, Pier- uh, Neil Pearson, who's now who deals a lot with... Uh, but he said, you've got to be careful, Griff, because some of the studios are very, very... Nobody can sell anything to do with Harry Potter because if you try and sell anything to do with Harry Potter, the studio, Warner Brothers, turn up and say, that's not your property. It's our property. It's Warner Brothers, Harry Potter. So you are not allowed to sell that or do anything with it except give it back to us. And I think that I'm quite happy to see if, you know, Warner Brothers or Disney get a little bit excited about Pirates of the Caribbean, because I'm just thinking if they try and stop us, imagine, you know, we're oh. taking it, we're here to help children, and they're, you know, they're the famous <laughs> children. You know, it just would be rotten publicity for them and great publicity for us. Um, and the thing I thought you were going to mention there, it says here that Tom Holland has also given a pair of pants. Is that really the spirit of the auction, or is that...? 
as you basically donated a, a booby prize. They're very famous pants. Oh, yeah. Uh, years ago, the reason Tom has given me so much, when you go through the catalogue, you see there's quite a lot from Tom, is that years ago, he was his... Uh, niece, I think, or something is involved in a hospice, has been, you, you know, in Oxford. And he got me in along to do a show, and he and I put the show together, and it was great. And we did a lot, we had a lot of fun. And we <laughs> said, but I ran the auction at this thing, it was the, in the Oxford Playhouse. And um, one of the things that I'd been given to auction was um, uh, Jude Law's sh- shirt that he wore in Cold Mountain, the film. And I got up on stage and I said, have a look at this one, Uh, um, everybody in the audience, because I have to say to all of you sitting there, you girls, that uh, this, he's a method actor, Jude. He never took this shirt off in the entire time that he was in the film for three months. And it's here. I'm holding it at arm's length. And here it is, this shirt. Now, what what am I bid for this extraordinary Jude infused artifact and uh, they went mad uh, and I sold it for four grand and uh, it was just a great moment and we passed it over and we said and I said Jude you're in the audience he was in the audience I said would you mind stepping up here to acknowledge and he came and sort of gave a wave and sort of you know and I said will you sign it for the and, and he said yeah of course of course and I said I can't help noticing Jude that you're standing there and you are wearing a shirt at this very moment and we have a very disappointed underbidder here who nearly bid 4000 but only went as high as 3500 Would you possibly take off that shirt you're wearing? And he did, very, he very, in a very gentlemanly, cavalier way, took off his shirt, bare-chested, <laughs> handed over the shirt he was wearing for a further 3500 smackers. You know, that's what, you know, that is... That is, you know, I'd like to see that happen, the Sotheby's, wouldn't you? Where they say, you know, oh, here we go, we've <laughs> sold this, you know, Rick, look, just behind the ta- under the table here, to you nearly bought, we've got another one. It'd be awkward if Tom Hollander then had to remove his pants that he was wearing and, and hand them over to... Well, as I say, that's why we're online. But I have thought... <laughs> I thought we could, you know, we could try now, via your radio programme, we could try going out to all, you know, the hunks mm-hmm. of a certain age with a certain following of ladies and say, come on, hunks, give us your... Uh, match Tom Hollander's bright red <laughs> Y-front keks with something, you know, as useful and as sought after, and we'll have a special sort of collection of a gentleman section in the auction, you know, of, you know, Hugh Grant's underpants and... Uh, Hunks. Stiffens, you know. Yeah. Hunks with trunks. Exactly. I think there'd be a big demand for it. I can imagine we'd start to really do what I wanted to do, which is raise an inordinate sum of money for our cause. I wonder, though, I don't know, pants feel like they're a, a step too far. I don't know if you want second-hand pants, do you? Well, they're very well washed, these particular... I should, oh, I should have said that. That's probably, that's probably really... <laughs> <laughs> they're not as they're, they're not as valuable if they're clean. Surely, I, they're very maybe 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 not. But we're, we're you know you, people can imagine. I mean, I, we can get. I'm sure Tom, who's very willing, will wear them again if that's what somebody really really wants. <laughs> um, and who gives a rundown of some of the celebrities who've donated? Who gives a rundown? Mm-hmm. Where can you mean? How can you find out? Uh, yeah, or I know yeah. I've just put this in front of me. I know you've got Kate Blanchett. What has Kate Blanchett donated? 
She's given us a rather nice... Do you know Carol, that movie oh, show? Yeah, I love that movie, yeah. That's, she's given us a little box of mementos from Carol, including a script and some photos and stuff like that. All very lovingly put together. I love it, yeah. Obviously, you've got uh, David Walliams, Davina McCall, Dawn French, yeah. Michael Havers, Nigella Lawson, Tom Hollander, as we said, and, and obviously many more that I haven't got in front of me. No, well, well that's some... good. I can give you... This is the great thing. If you want to have a psychological... Say you want to visit the site just to see what sort of junk do these celebrities think they can perpetrate? What can they force on the world? That's another good reason for visiting the site. And if you genuinely go and look at it, this is the point, and it goes, I don't have, you know, I don't want any of this clutter. Why on earth would I want, you know, one of Anita Dobson's old dresses? I know what I'll do. I will just bid for nothing, which you can do. So you can just bid in order to to get absolutely nothing. Or you can bid for a, a new table at one of the hospices or something like that. So you don't, you know, you can, you can leave money, as it you were, as opposed to, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and was, was there anything that turned up that you got the impression that's just something you wanted to get rid of? Do you ever, do you ever something turn up and go, oh, hang on, that's just, uh, that's just a bit of junk that you're trying to clear out? No, only my stuff. <laughs> 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 The rest of it was surprisingly difficult to winkle out. Is that how the idea struck you for a celebrity auction? Well, I did move. I did move house during during <laughs> lockdown. I did find myself going. God, what a lot of stuff we got here. So yeah, there was an element of that. Yes, yes, there was. <laughs> um, and the other thing that's currently happening, you've got Griff's Great Australian Adventure, which is, oh yeah, 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 which is on I believe ITV Four doing hour long versions. Yeah. Doing a shorter version. Yes, humiliating, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you like it, and what happened is they put out three of them, they put them out just when COVID started, so everybody missed them because they were rushing around the TV trying to to find stuff about. And then they've had a long, 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 long pause. They've had to think about it. They put out the other three. And uh, But the longer version started on Monday. Uh, That was me. I've done, actually, I spent six months on down and I thought this is you know, what you want my age you want to work you know nothing could be better you work in the summer over here and then you go over touring around Britain on my never-ending tour and then you go over big you know do a little bit of a tour in Australia which I've done as well in New Zealand and then you do a couple of television programs over there where they still love you Griff they still love me over there so it was great. I made these for ABC, and, uh, I mean, they were huge hits on Australian TV. That's why, you know, ITV had put it on ITV4, whatever that is, uh, because they were already such huge hits on Australian TV. <laughs> but did you get paid twice, then, for doing a, a short version and a long version? Have you been in the business a long time? <laughs> <laughs> so that you didn't get paid twice? <laughs> that's a shame no a shame. it is a pity it is a pity yes it is a pity that the way they the way they've they've worked they've they've, they've, they've worked it out these television uh, companies they are surprisingly difficult to uh to get to um, pay for things that you do for them mm, these days i, I mean that mm. and i was going to say i can imagine because you have a lot of british comics often do really well in australia don't they i don't know why that is it's that sort of um I don't know. Things seem to translate to Australians. I guess because it's we're further away. Perhaps we're more exotic to Australians. But it really feels like Australians really go big for British comedy. 
Well, they do. Some they do for some, and they do for and what that. Of course, you know, Australian TV shows quite and has done in the past much less these days because you know an Australian actor these days, you know, does a few years working in Australian TV and goes straight to Hollywood. That doesn't happen to British actors anymore. But you know, you look at you look at the uh, 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 at Hollywood, and it's full of full of Australian actors and old Etonians, and those are the only people who can make it in Hollywood these days. But yeah, so I found rather bizarrely, really, it's one of those great things is to find that the programs which nobody's been particularly bothered about over here, uh, God bless, you know, profit in your own land and all that. So you suddenly you can make quite a profit in in a foreign land. And that sort of element has sort of um, suddenly happened in Australia. And I've, I've had whole weekends, Griff Rees-Jones weekends in Australia, which and you can't do better than that, can you? No. No. Yeah, were, you, were you touring Australia a lot in the sort of 80s and 90s? Was that? I have toured Australia. I did tour Australia, yeah, me, me and Mel. And uh, and New Zealand, which is uh, slightly even more complicated to go to New Zealand, because when we first went to New Zealand, it really did. It was, I mean, it 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 did shut at about five o'clock in the evening. It was quite it was quite a weird place to go to. I mean, see, I'm not I'm not knocking New Zealand. People, we've had a lot of New Zealand. How wonderful they are at coping with COVID and all that, and the fact that they're you know when I was there on tour, well. 18 months ago, whatever it was. I mean, they reached the population of 5 million New Zealand. So I think people might be unaware that they are the size of Great Britain with a population of 5 million. And that's one of the reasons why fighting off COVID was not really so difficult for the New Zealand. I'm not, I'm not knocking what they did. They're very good at it. But, uh, yeah, and they used to, when I first went to New Zealand in the 80s, television itself finished at 10 o'clock. It was quite weird if you're on tour, because you imagine you do the show, come back, switch on the telly, you know, to just relax for a little bit, and it was just a... There was nothing on at all. But that's what New Zealand... Well, it's not... Of course, it's not like that at all anymore. I think it goes on to midnight now. I think uh, they... (laughs) (laughs) I love being in New Zealand. So, yeah, I've done New Zealand and Australia. But I'm really big. Mel and I were really big in the 80s, in Finland. Why do you think that is? I don't know. We never found out. (laughs) Well, interestingly, I think we get our biggest audiences, apparently, in the the iTunes charts. We're very big in Malta. Really? Oh, oh, it's a big place, Malta. People don't realise how huge it is. And Finland, similarly. I hope, I wish you luck in Finland. We went, we suddenly got a call from the Finnish government and uh, we said, uh, A, and the Finnish government wanted us to go over Mel and Griff to make a film about uh, Finland to show <laughs> to President Reagan, who was coming over on an aeroplane, because President Reagan, God bless him, had never heard of Finland. He thought it was part of Russia. So they needed to make a film to show him. And they, they chose their two favourite comedians... The Morecambe and Wise of Finland, we didn't even know. Can you imagine how embarrassing that was to be told by the government that you were the Morecambe and Wise of Finland and you had no idea? And so we, <laughs> the show was called Snow in Your Cottage 
And we went over there. My first experience of arriving in Finland. And we arrived, we got off the plane, went into the middle of Helsinki, went into the biggest hotel, and we'd been put up in some style. And uh, everybody went for a drink, as you can imagine, having got off the plane. And I needed, because we'd been on the plane, I wanted to go to relieve myself. So I went into the urinal. And this, I, um, forgive me if you've heard it, it's a Frank Sinatra joke, but this is absolutely true. I'm standing at the urinal, and the man in the, there are two types of fins. They're really big fins, you know, like the Finnish stoker, you know, who's always, you know, locked in the boat when the boat goes down and they have to cut the... That's the Finnish stoker and the little sort of elf fin. fin. And the, this was a Finnish stoker bloke. He was huge. He was about sort of six foot six. And he was micturating. And he saw me and he suddenly went, Oh, oh, my God! Oh God! Hey, everybody, look! And turned and started peeing all over my, all over. My <laughs> <shoe>. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look! Hey, look! What it is? It is Griff! It is Mister Jones! And everybody in the urinal stopped. You know, <laughs> and I'm bursting. You know, I can't. I'm one of those people who can't easily, easily urinate. You know, with sure. other people too close to me, especially if they're hugging me from all sides. So this is <laughs> a great thing. A great thing. Really great. So what, so what was the film? Was it feature length or was it like no, a No, no, it was quite short. It was quite short. Mel played a modern Santa Claus and I, I, I was unfortunately just the interviewer, you know. So, but we went all over Finland, sort of, you know, taking pictures of things in of Finnish achievements. And so it was played to President Reagan, who doesn't, I believe, have a long focus of, in those days, a lot of sort of... Right a lot of attention so it was actually quite it was only about 10 minutes long but after we made it it was extended a bit and then shown on christmas day as finland's principal entertainer <laughs> they see people don't realize what stardom some can bring you what delights and you'll be able to go to malta you too and mm. and play the malta uh Isoldo one day that's a very that's a very exciting prospect, I think. Yes, yeah. I would like to go to Malta. Can I just say, in lockdown, I yeah. have watched... Um, I, we didn't know that you were going to be a guest until last week, but in lockdown, right. I watched um, Morons from Outer Space. Did you? Good I Lord. bought what it on DVD. possessed you? What did possess you to do that? I bought it on DVD, because I'd never seen it, and, yeah. um, and I really enjoyed it. Well, I tell you, there's a funny thing about Morris Motor Space. Right? We came out, we made this this film. And when after we made it, the British press said this was the worst film ever, ever made. I mean, not just, <laughs> like, not just like, not just, I mean, it, there was a sort of pride in having been told by people. Uh, one critic said, die before you see this film. Isn't this fantastic? So, I mean, I went into sort of the, uh, me and the director, Mike Hodges, a very famous director, Mike, because he, yeah. you know, made Get Carter and things like that. I mean, we just went, and um, I have never, never seen it again. I was so embarrassed by it. All right, we never saw it. So then, Two years ago, right, I get a phone call a year ago, a year ago, phone call from the um, from the BFI, the British Film Institute. Yeah. And somebody who works for the BFI said, we are doing a, a series uh, of books, whole books on great cult films that were disastrously misunderstood at the time that they came out. And I said, and we said, we'd like to do more on Smart Space. I said, no, no. All right. I don't know who you are, but please stop bringing this number. I don't know how you found this number. <laughs> <laughs> 
And this is what happened. And so they had a special showing for long-term cult fans in the Prince of Wales. You know, the Prince of Wales in the middle of London. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, and Mike, who's a very, very dear man, he's a really great bloke, I had to, persp- I had to ring him up and say, Mike, it's like, I mean, I think a documentary could have been made about this, couldn't you? <laughs> Mike, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> But you know that film we made so long ago, which was universally panned? It's now, apparently, <laughs> it's apparently not bad. But the truth is, we had to sit there and watch it. And it's not bad. I mean, it's got some very good gags in it, but it's a bit of a mess, really, in places. Not because of Mike, but because of us writing it and throwing in, you know, little bits. But there are some very good gags in it, aren't there? I like the gag about walking around with a salute thing, where where... Uh, anyway, I can't. I mean, I just. And yeah. there's another good gag um, where we are watching uh, a riot outside the house. And we're watching a riot. I remember writing it. And watching a riot outside the house and saying, Look at them, they're all turning violent. Look at that bloke, he's throwing a brick. And as we're watching the TV, the brick flies in through the window and smacks me off. And <laughs> <laughs> So we so we enjoyed making it uh, and enjoyed you know and enjoyed it you know and then couldn't quite understand why people had sort of disliked it so much but they did. I but also the also the special effects are great, aren't they? Like the uh, the opening stuff with the spaceships and stuff is great. I mean that's like good quality that's good quality special effects right there. Oh, I, that, yeah. Good quality special effects and the whole thing landing on the M six is a is a, a is a funny sequence. You know them trying to bring mm. the spaceship down. There's lots of brilliant stuff in it. And one or two things which, you know, don't quite come, but I can't quite understand. I mean, it's like one of those mysteries as to why sort of why people took a guinea quite so much at the time. So the, the secret is that it's almost, you wouldn't be able to find it anywhere. I don't know where you found it. <laughs> were you in a garage by any chance? I, I bought it. <laughs> I bought it as um, there were four films. There was Morons from Outer Space. Yeah. And there were two... And then there were two, like, 1950s kind of science fiction B-movies. And then there was another, like, 80s film. I can't remember what that one was called. But basically, I wanted more from outer space, and I had to buy it as yes. part of the box set. I um, quite so like to you... see the film called... I can't remember what that one was called. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Um, it had Kathy. It's got Kathy Ireland in it, who Ooh. is only... The only thing that I've ever seen her in is Loaded Weapon 1. Ah, oh, right. That. OK, I can see you're um, a bit of a buff for uh, obscure films. We did once find, you know, whether sort of Quentin Tarantino touch, a bloke came over from New York who was very, very rich, and he had been introduced to this film um, by uh, a bloke who ran a video store, and they decided it was their favourite film. Of all, I mean, this was a man who ran a video store, and he said uh, he came over wanting to make Morons too, and he actually came and offered us a huge amount of money. <laughs> and we were so embarrassed by the sort of general attitude to it, we genuinely thought he was a bit nuts. I didn't really so you know. turned him down? We did, yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? But that's what yes. life was like in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when you, so did you, did you watch it with an audience at the Prince Charles then? We did. Yeah, yeah. We sat down. Uh, is it Prince Charles, Prince of Wales? I can't remember the one in in the middle, which shows. Yeah, we sat down. Prince Charles, and, Prince Charles. Yeah, and they laughed along. They also, it was, you know, it was held over for a second week in Wuppertal. 
I'm letting that. I'm letting that feed itself. <laughs> but wasn't that like incredible? It didn't... I, I, I watched that film a lot when I was when I was young, and I remember it very fondly. I guess the the bit that, that sticks to my mind most is the bit of uh, Mel sneezing into his um, his face. <laughs> his face helmet. And, uh, yeah. it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's not it's not the cleverest joke in the world, but it's very funny. Yeah, exactly. It's full of uh, uh, crude jokes, that nature. But the point is that for those who haven't yet seen it, it's too late. Because I, you know, by all means, go and see it now and tell me that I was a genius for having written this film. But it's too late, quite honestly. If you, They should have told me that just after I'd finished it. I wouldn't have said, I never want to do that again. And I could have made a whole section of more, you know. But, you know, that's just the way it goes. Sure. Um, I suppose you had Wilt as well, wasn't that? Was a kind of a um... oh, Wilt? Yeah, yeah. That was a, that was. I remember. Yes. Yeah. So my the two outings into the film world were a little bit, you know. And then for a long period, I had a very uh, had a very good um, sort of turnaround. As every film, somebody. This is one of those things, strange things that happened to you. Um, I'd have directors, quite one quite aggressive director, who said, uh, uh, you know, you know, I'm wanted to offer me a part in his film. And any bad, virtually bad film that's being made, somebody would come to me and offer me a part. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, unfortunately, I can't do it. You know, I've tried to be in all these bad films and have small parts in them. And he said, oh, no, no, you've got to be in this. And I said, uh, why? And he said, well, because there's a bloke who puts the money in it who says you've got to be in it. And I never found out <laughs> who that was. But for a while, there was somebody who was putting money into bad films on the basis... That one of the <laughs> one of the qualifications was that I had to be in them. Oh. Um, um, I went to see I went to see you um, in Wind in the Willows when I was younger. Oh yes. What was that like? Well, that was a mysterious show as well because it was a Christmas show, and so we kicked off to do it over Christmas at the National Theatre. What I remember about doing it was the sort of agony of the way that the National works in repertoire. Have you, have you done a lot of work in the theatre? I've done a bit of work in the theatre. Yeah, well, you understand the principle that bringing yourself up to a peak for the opening night. And sure. that was quite an exciting thing with a lot of, you know, there was a lot going on. There was that thing we called the poppadom, which went up and down and round and round. There were, you know, there was no speech I delivered as 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 Toad, the, well, I like to think as the star of the show. You know, um, there was no, there was no, no speech I delivered which didn't have a thousand bunny rabbits running about the stage playing violins <laughs> and generally sort of distracting from me. And I remember talking to her because Nick Heitner was an old mate of mine. And I said, Nick, you know, um, would you like me to wait with this speech, you know, until the bunny rabbits have sort of settled down? And no, 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 Griff, no. But it's just there's a whole orchestra playing over. No, no, Griff, no, no, just, just. Uh, so all my speeches were tended to be delivered with any number <laughs> of distractions going. And uh, so I did this whole thing, and we worked our, you know, we worked very hard to get ourselves up and running the show. And then, um, uh, as is the way with the National Theatre, they suddenly, uh, they said, that's it, we'll see you in a week's time. So you open the show, and then they op- they put in another show. Do you know what I mean? To, to occupy that space, and you go home for a bit of a holiday, and in order to forget all those last-minute instructions, and then come in and try and pick it up a week later. It was quite bizarre. And people used to say to me, sort of months and months later, they'd say, what, what are you up to, Griffin? I said, oh, I'm in, the, uh, I'm in the Wind of the Willows at the National. they say, that's a Christmas show. 
And I say, yeah, I know, I know, but it was doing so well, they just kept it going. So it's, I was still doing it in June of July the following year, you know, getting ready to do it for Christmas again. But you see, that it had Terence Rigby in it. Do you remember Albert the Horse in it? No. No, he pulled the carriage. Albert the horse. He only had about right, four right, right, lines. Right. And Terence had been in Zedcar, so he's a very, very experienced, older, sort of slightly gruff northern actor. And Ter- a brilliant actor. And I learned a lot from Terence. But he he would start, and the n- same note would come. Nick Heitner would gather all the cast together after each rehearsal. And he'd say, and he'd say um, it's going, it's going absolutely marvellous. Terence, you're so funny as the horse. It's absolutely funny. Your lines are brilliant because they were Alan Bennett type complaining lines. But he said, but um, we need to move a little bit more quickly. Um, you're leaving quite a long pause before you say the line. Am I? Yes. Yes, you are. And uh, I think it'd be better if you just said it just a little bit more quickly on cue. Oh, oh, all right. I will, yes. All right. Yeah. So... He'd come, come to another performance and there'd be another long pause. And he never... <laughs> he'd, basically, he'd stand there. He'd, he had a lot of horse bridles on and he'd sort of rattle his head and wait until the horse bridles were all thing. He'd move, nay, and stamp his foot. Wait until the whole audience in the Olivier had turned to look at the horse. And then he'd slowly deliver his line. And when the reviews came out, guess who was the favourite character that every single critic loved more than anybody else, especially that toad who gabbled his lines and I couldn't hear a word he was saying because of all those rabbits running around. But we loved Albert the horse. And that's a lesson to you. If you've got, you know, lines, wander around, stamp, nay, bang your feet and rattle your horse brasses before you say them. And then, you, you know, everybody will pay attention. In a way, he's right as well, isn't he? He's absolutely right. To do of course that. he is. But if he, if everybody had behaved like Albert the Horse, the show would have been five hours long, you know. <laughs> Out of everything you do, you produce, you act, you write, uh, what's, do you have a favourite or do you like to do it all? Well, I have a favourite, and the favourite is to just um, keep moving, you know, not to find yourself, I'm not, I'm a little bit... I, uh, I get theatre work and people are always saying, will you come and do another piece of theatre? And I have to go, hmm, I suppose, yeah. Can we do it for just a week? <laughs> 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 and they say, no, 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 obviously, Griff, we want to do a big run in the West End. Yeah, how many shows? Because, I mean, you know, doing 120 shows of a single thing can be quite... I don't mind the routine as much these days, but that's... So theatre has the disadvantage if you get it up to a great height and you enjoy yourself, especially big comedy. There's plenty of work to be done. You know, I did The Miser with... Uh, 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 I've forgotten the name of the director, the lovely, lovely director. It'll come to me. My wife's shouting in the background, but I've got the headphones on, so I can't hear her. Um, so anyway... <laughs> I did this. We did the miser, and Lee Mack was in it, and everything, and we and we had a great time doing it. But the thing is that you work your way through, and you think, "Oh, there's another laugh in here," and you go in. I always like to go into a comedy, you know, with it sort of half prepared with the idea. Let's see what the audience likes. We'll work it out from there, which we did. And so you gradually work it out, and then there comes a point <coughs> where you do the show, and the show is terrific, and it really works like better than it's ever worked before. And from then on, it's downhill because you spend your whole time going, well, it wasn't as good, 
wasn't as good as last night, was it? It wasn't as good as the night we did it. The trip. So I always think that the optimum thing with comedy on stage is to get the fun out of it and then be able to run. But you never... That scarcely happens. But if you're in cinema or film, you know, that's all great because you only get... You get one showing and you don't have to be around. They've recorded it. It's all done. You don't have to do it again and again and again and again and again. But the process of getting to do it takes the best part of an entire day for 20 seconds of work, you know. <sighs> so I don't like... I find that also slightly tedious. And I do quite like making sort of documentaries because they don't have enough money. Or you, as the producer, I can tell you. you uh, speaking as a producer, you never have enough money. Uh, they've, uh, they're refusing to pay you anymore. And, they, and they've given you uh, enough to do the whole thing in about four days. So you try and rush around like a blue arse fly and knock everything off in four days. And the excitement of doing it is just absolutely fantastic because you never stop when you're doing it. Whether you actually produce anything that anybody wants to watch, we shall see on Friday night on ITV. <laughs> and Natalie has informed us that Sean Foley was the director. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've got Sean Foley written down here. That's what my wife is here to inform <laughs> me, to write it on a piece of paper. Sean. Um, yeah, and I'd always wanted to work with Sean because I loved his stuff. You know, he did uh, the right size, and he did, and he did um, uh, uh, the Labour <laughs> Killers and everything like that. So I loved, I loved, I loved uh, the opportunity to work with him, and we had a great time. Um, we have come to the end of our time, but we have time for a game. So we're just going to go. You've got celebrity bottom drawer that people can go online and bid for. Uh, the lots that they've got. So I'm just wrapping up. And uh, oh, right, yeah. we've also got uh, Griff's Great Australian I Adventure. I thought this was the game. ITV4. No, this isn't the game. I'm going to hand you over <laughs> to Nathaniel now. Nathaniel, uh, play the game. Now, Griff, this is the game. The game is called Better or Worse. And you mm. have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before. And you score points based on my own opinion as to whether they are better or worse. Oh, right, good. Okay, I like this. Yeah. Beginning with Telly Savalis. Yes. But is Al Capone better or worse than Telly Savalis? Worse, worse. Worse, he is worse. Is Al Pacino better or worse than Al Capone? Al Pacino's better. He is better. Sir Trevor McDonald. Is Sir Trevor McDonald better or worse than Al Pacino? Worse. Worse, well, I'm afraid. In the high cards, yeah. Ronald McDonald. Is Ronald McDonald <laughs> better or worse than Sir Trevor McDonald? He's, he's worse. He is worse. This is easy, this game, yeah. Donald <laughs> Sanders better or worse than Ronald McDonald? Well, better, I think, yeah. He is better. Yeah. <laughs> better or worse than Colonel Sanders? I missed it. Who? George Sanders. Better or worse than... Oh, far, far, far better than Colonel Sanders. Yes? Yeah. Bing Crosby. Better or worse than George Sanders? Um, worse. Better. better. No, 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 no. George Sanders is un uh, unbeatable in all his films. Just fantastic. <laughs> You're wrong. You're wrong. You've lost the game. <laughs> Vinnie Jones. Better or worse than Bing Crosby? Vinny Jones worse, worse. worse than that, yeah. Shirley but he's Bass very good, Vinny. I like him a lot. I think he's great. I just not, he's, but there very few. But if you have to go, That's you're reaching, you're reaching high. It's not the you're game. It's not the game, Griff. Oh. Not the game, Griff. Shirley Bassey, better or worse than Vinny Jones? Shirley Bassey? Mm -hmm. uh, better, I think. Better, better. 
Gandhi. Better or worse than Shirley Bassey? <laughs> <laughs> Better. No, this is not. It's like, I have to say, they're of equal status, surely. I think I'm going to give him the edge. I'm going to give Gandhi the edge. Are you? Right, OK. Oh, I right. Oh, he doesn't sing as well as Shirley does. No. But it's not. It's just better or worse. It's a, it's and, a, he, and he doesn't... He wears dresses, but he doesn't look as good in them. Sure. Is that it? Is that yeah. the it? Have you done, have you done ten? Right, so you have scored eight, Griff, which means that you're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford, Zoe Cladena with ten, David Baddiel, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine, but you are as good as Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt Okine, Miranda Raisin, Chris Stark, Stu Whiffen with eight, and you're better than James King, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, and Gary Delaney with six. So you've gone about average there, uh, but... Oh. Yeah, you did very well. You did very well. Very, very well. Um, I brought it on myself. I brought it on myself. I know what you were fishing for, but I wasn't going to be bullied by you lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you for being our guest this week. Um, That's all we've got time for, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Keep your fan mail coming in. And uh, and, uh, we are now welcoming Griff Rees-Jones to the fan club. Uh, oh, clubhouse. How sweet. Uh, thank That's you very much. Thank you so much. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Stay safe.